This episode is brought to you by Quarter. With Quarter, you get frictionless access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports from markets all around the world straight to your pocket for free. Their main mission is to create a completely new bridge between companies and shareholders and really to reinvent investor relations as we know it. You can try out Quarter today by typing in Q-U-A-R-T-R in your app store of choice. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R or simply click the link in the show notes. And there's five key points to remember about Quarter. One, Quarter is completely free. Two, they include companies from over 16 markets today and plan to add more over time. Three, they easily allow new companies on their platform by simply requesting the ticker of the company and they'll get back to you instantly. Four, users can now leave reactions while listening to calls to make their voices heard. And five, again, it's free and I only back products that I believe in and products that I use every single day. Quarter is an everyday part of my process and I wouldn't live without it. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R. Try it out today. Before we dive into today's conversation, I want to talk to you about MIT Investment Management Company, also known as Matimco, the investment office of MIT. Each year, Matimco invests with a handful of new emerging managers who it believes can earn exceptional long-term returns in support of MIT's mission. In order to help the emerging manager community more broadly, they created EmergingManagers.org, a website for emerging manager stock pickers. For those looking to start a stock picking fund or those just looking to learn about how others have done it, I highly recommend this site. You'll find essays and interviews by successful emerging managers, service providers used by MIT's own fund managers, essays Matimco has written for emerging stock pickers, and more. Matimco also occasionally and opportunistically hires new members for their investment team. To view the job description, please visit matimco.org global investor. That's M-I-T-I-M-C-O dot O-R-G slash global investor. The Matimco team spends their time learning about great businesses and investments, working with exceptional investors around the world in order to support generations of MIT innovators. I'm also excited to announce Tegas. Tegas has the world's largest collection of instantly available interviews on all the public and private companies you care about. All you have to do is log in and type in a stock ticker or a keyword. For example, if you're interested in gaming stocks, you can type in RBLX for Roblox or type in the keyword metaverse and instantly read hundreds of calls on the company and industry. Tegas actually makes primary research fun and effortless too. Instead of weeks and months, you can learn a new industry or company in hours and all from those that know it best. Now I only sponsor products that I use every day and Tegas is no exception. Since joining, I spend nearly all my time reading Tegas calls on existing companies and new ideas into my portfolio. And I know you will too. So if you're interested Head on over to tegas.co forward slash value hive for a free trial to see for yourself. Again, that's tegas.co forward slash value hive. All right, Jay. So you and I were just discussing the idea of well, this well, this big this big picture, and this is, you know, kind of a niche that I that I have to scratch of. Every fundamental investor says that they you know, they're pure bottoms up and it's, it's all about what the business does. And then all of a sudden when shit hits the fan, every investor had every, you know, fundamental value investor has a macro take. And you never knew that these guys were, um, you know, looking at the macro picture and, 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 and the global picture. And, and right, right before we hit record, you know, we were, we were both kind of just discussing how really everything is a factor bet. And that's kind of the way that you should view um, all investments, no matter if you're top down or bottoms up. I 100% agree with you. 
Um, if you take a step back and think about investing in general, we were all trained you know, in the 90s um, as bottom-up investors. So what does that mean? It means having an investment thesis, looking at a company, understanding um, the three financial statements um, and how they connect, understanding the business model, understanding the management team and their capital allocation policy, understanding the business in terms of Porter's Five Forces, you know, barriers to entry, um, the competitive landscape, and its ability to ultimately generate free cash flow or grow earnings per share. That was the, you know, the epitome of being a bottoms-up investor. And then if you took it a step further, being an event investor, a special situations investor, you know, understanding how to unlock catalysts, if they could do an asset sale or a buyback or increase a dividend, or enter in a contract with a new customer or a new business line or spin off or split off a certain division. Um, that was what it meant to be, uh, you know, an investor. And today, you know, I think that um, investors have realized that competition has increased. Um, there's no such thing as sticky capital, whether you are a hedge fund or a mutual fund, um, you really don't have long-term capital. So the decisions that you make, um, have to be cognizant of your factor exposures and how those could, you know, essentially be, um, could drive returns over quarters, over uh, one or two years, uh, because we aren't, you know, fortunate in this type of environment to have, you know, large family offices and pensions and endowments with five, 10, 20 year time horizons. And if you are in that type of seat, I am very envious of you. Um, but, uh, you know, over the last few cycles, just to do a quick recap, you know, whether it was the Russian bond default in 98 or the tech bubble from it collapsed from March 10th, 2000 to October 4th, 2002, or, you know, the real estate and financial crisis of 2008 or the pigs peripheral crisis of 2011 and 12, where the U.S. debt um, ceiling was an issue and we were downgraded as well, or the China and global commodity slowdown in 2015-16 or the last QT we had in 2018. And finally, the exogenous shock of COVID and the big uh, deflating of the tech and, and crypto and fintech uh, bubble of this past two years. Um, I think the biggest lesson for investors is to know what you own um, and not just you know on a single company bottoms up basis, but you know, understand the factor exposures of your portfolio. If you're 100% invested in no profit tech, you know, your portfolio could be down 80% this year. Yeah. If you were 100% long treasuries, your portfolio could be down double digits this year as well. So um, it's, it's a wake up call for a lot of investors, um, whether they're just managing their personal accounts or their institutional. Yeah, I mean, you're seeing just kind of like another theme is, uh, what's going on in the energy space where you're having investors that have never you know, looked at energy companies or have written them off as commodity businesses that won't, you know, aren't, aren't great businesses. All of a sudden, you know, these, these names are getting bought and it, it's just, it's just this massive rotation, like you said, from, we'll call it what's worked in the past year to, you know, year and a half, two years to now what's working today. And um, like, again, it just, it just, it just makes me wonder if, every like name that someone says like, Oh, I'm a value investor. I'm a growth investor. I'm, I'm, I'm this, I'm that. 
at the end of the day, like all we're doing is betting on fund flows and where those flows are going to go over time and where the disproportionate amount of those fund flows were going to go. Because like you said, if you were investing in unprofitable tech, you know, between call it like 2012, 2014, up until 20, 2020, like you just couldn't miss. And you had people like exactly. raise billion dollar funds when like what they were really betting on wasn't necessarily these tech businesses. And like, it wasn't betting on this, you know, rapid adoption of a certain type of consumer style. You were just betting on fund flows disproportionately going into an asset class that you happen to invest in. That is absolutely right. And, you know, those tailwinds, you know, they, they they work until they don't. And if you're not positioned accordingly, you can be caught with your pants down and, you know, I call it the church of what's working now. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, when I was on the buy side, I think one thing that people used to joke about, you know, I was sitting with um, William Danoff, who ran the Fidelity Contra Fund, and we were at a conference. And one thing he, he shared with me was when generalists are piling into a sector trade, it is probably like the eighth or ninth inning of that trade. Hmm. So when everyone who is not an energy expert or a tech expert, or a real estate expert or a financials expert is jumping into a sector because of an idea or a theme, the trade is probably almost over. Um, or at least it, you know, there are only a couple innings left. Yeah. Well, and I had, I had a similar, and this is just like a personal example. Um, but like, it's, it's, it's way more difficult because I think, I think Bill Gurley would say like, you know, at a certain point you have to, play while the music, you know, you have to, you have to dance while the music's playing. And unfortunately the most money is made like right at the end of that. And I've just had personal examples of, of, of friends and, and, and family members of friends, like everybody, it seems over the last year and a half has gotten into real estate. Like, Oh, I'm doing real estate as a side hustle. Oh, I'm doing, you know, I'm flipping real estate. And it's like, they might be in that eighth or ninth inning, but you just don't know when that inning's going to end. And I think that's what's really got a lot of people hooked in, like especially in crypto too, where you, you, you knew the music was playing and you knew that the dance was coming to an end, but you just didn't know when. And, and the risk-adjusted payoff of you not participating was just so high that you had to almost. Well, I, I take a different approach to that and, and I can sympathize with it, but you know, I was buying 10 caps in the Midwest, uh, multifamilies, you know, in mm -hmm. 2012, 2013. And I think patience is, is something that is undervalued and common sense is undervalued today. Mm -hmm. You know, the real estate market in many of the, the, the top 20 metropolitan areas in the United States didn't really bottom until four years after the great financial crisis. So in 2012, especially in the Midwest, that's when prices bottomed. Um, so that, you know, what you're saying is right. You know, real estate could take longer um, to correct. Um, but we've seen, you know, that corrections, you know, it's a staircase up and then a cliff down. And, you know, when everyone's trying to get out, there's no way to get out. So mm -hmm. I think it makes sense to, you know, to take profit, um, when you think there's some irrational exuberance, whatever asset class you're in, you know, Bill Gurley, you know, I respect Bill Gurley, you know, he was born in the sixties, you know, general partner at benchmark, um, you know, benchmarks based in Menlo Park. He's one of the one of the Midas 
list uh, top VC professionals. And I think the advantage of having a venture capital fund is it's a multi-year fund, right? Yeah. There's an investment period and a harvesting period, and you can have a 10-year view. Um, I think it's much different when you're, when you're trading a liquid asset class. Um, and real estate's kind of in the middle where it's more liquid um, than VC, right? You could easily sell a multifamily today, give or take, you know, the bid ask of maybe 5%. Um, in some markets, you'll probably get above ask. But I think that it is very difficult. I think the, the investor mentality of, of just hold forever has been supported by a Fed that has been easing for 15 years. And right. it's, it's made, you know, it's given the illusion that there's no vol along the way, but there's significant vol along the way. Um, and if you're not generating cash or your, or your properties or investments are not generating significant cash flow, I mean, you're always at, you're always at a risk of, of, of a uh, material uh, mark to market loss. Well, and then it brings into the question, and this is something that I've discussed with um, my friend, Dan McMurtry is this idea of like, there's almost this duality of um, like a five-year time horizon where you could be right. Like, let's say you invest in a company that's losing money today, um, trying to capture like a huge market share. And, you know, for whatever reason, you've got high conviction that they're going to get there. Um, and that's worked, right? Let's say that's worked for the last two and a half, three years. But now, you know, right, the market is telling you we are discounting any company that burns money. Like, we don't care what the path looks like. We don't care if it's going to be profitable in years five, six, seven. Like, we're, we're, we're discounting all of them today. And it's like, if you, if you understand that and you're like, okay, like, I know that that's a reality. There is like, now you're just introducing a lot of path risk to your end result, right? To where maybe you invest in a company at 1 billion, you think you can go to 5 billion. Um, but now along the way, Mr. Market is telling you, look, like that 1 billion, like we're now going to value that at maybe 500 million to 400 million along that path to maybe reaching 5 billion. And then it brings in the question of like, can your investors endure that? Can you endure that? Yeah, I think that that, that is a great question. And it just ends up being, what's the quality of your capital? How sympathetic are your investors? And what is your strategy? Um, because in different environments, different strategies can work. And if you have a five-year time horizon, you can take different types of risk um, than someone that is being evaluated every quarter um, or every month uh, can take. So an example that I was thinking about was, you know, you take a step back and, you know, there are 25,000 SaaS companies globally, according to Statista. And over the last couple of years, I think there are at least 160 uh, SaaS IPOs. And in every prospectus that you read of the IPO, there is a section that says either we are a legal monopoly or an oligopoly. Okay. And all of these companies have growing TAMs. And all of these companies had, you know, what was seen as unlimited capital to grow their sales teams and to, you know, take more market share of those TAMs. But I think what people weren't focusing on was that these TAMs, if you were to add them all up, they would have been bigger than the U.S. economy or the global economy. Yeah. <laughs> and that, you know, the TAMs encroach on each other, right? So, you know, let's say you're, you're focused on one end of the cybersecurity landscape 
and your competitor is focused on another end of the cybersecurity landscape. I'm going to try not to use specific tickers uh, yeah. for compliance reasons for most of the call, unless it's something I did in the past. Yeah. Um, and you know, with respect to those companies, you know, within five years, it is not unforeseeable that you know the companies serving small business in the cybersecurity uh, landscape would encroach on you know the Fortune 500 landscape or vice versa. If these companies are supposed to compound at 50% a year, either one or the other is going to either go downstream or upstream in its client base. And I think that there's kind of a fallacy um, and it was almost fed by the VCs, right? Um, where you can justify 30 times sales multiple if this company is only you know 3% of its TAM, yeah. right? Because it can grow. And what if it can grow? What if it's a market share leader and it becomes 40% of the TAM? right? Then it's, mm -hmm. it's actually could be cheap, but the, there's so much duration and there's so much uncertainty in making that type of bet. And it's not even my area of core competency, but just using common sense, which I think is, is hugely undervalued today. Um, a lot of the trades people were making were really based on how much capital can I raise and deploy? And let's just pay whatever we can pay and give them a term sheet so that we can grow our AUM and say, we did this great deal. Yeah. And in that, in that vein, one question that, that I've always had, and I'd be interested to get your take is like, how many of these companies that were spun up and, you know, created and went public, like how much of their TAM was just based on the fact that there was so much easy money out there that um, the businesses that they sold their product or service into could afford them just because there was so much extra cash lying around. And like the way I kind of think about it is like, um, you know, you've got like a shark and if you ever watch like discovery or something, there's always that like very small little fish that swims underneath the belly of the shark. And it's like, well, how much of that business, um, you know, was kind of protected and the shark allowed that business to generate revenue and profits off of them just because of how easy money was. And now you're seeing businesses lay off 18, 20% of their workforce. And it's like, how much of these products are actually sticky one and then be like how big is the actual market once once people start to look at their budgets and say like all right like what can we not live without and what can we do without i think those are all great questions that you're asking um one example i can give you from from recent times is in the united states since the year two since the year 2020 there were 33 fintech SPAC mergers, of which 14 are pending regulatory approval. So think about that. You know, I understand there's a lot of growth in fintech, but how many fintech and trading platforms do you need? How many crypto trading platforms do you need? Right. How many, you know, digital banks and wallets do you need? And are they all encroaching on each other? Right? Um, are the are the growth rates at places like SoFi, um, you know, and others? are those growth rates taking into account competition? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's just the, and then, and then you start to think like how much cannibalization is there? Like, do we need, and then, but the other problem is like, you'll have people that come out and say, oh, well, Google was the seventh search engine. And it's like, you can fit kind of any narrative you want at that point. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, I guess you could say that, and actually, you know, William Danoff uh, at the Contra Fund, you know, he actually had the opportunity to invest in Yahoo, and he didn't. And then when he met, you know, Sergey and the guys at at Google, he immediately liked 
you know, their pitch um, a lot better and invest. He was actually one of the biggest early investors in Google and ended up being a home run. But even he will tell you that, you know, there's a very small percentage of his stocks that drive the majority of his returns. Yeah. And if he hadn't had that meeting or had that experience with Yahoo to put it in context, you know, maybe that investment would have never happened. Hmm. Um, so I think successful investors and, you know, even successful entrepreneurs tend to pat themselves on the back when things go their way and take credit for things that, you know, might've just been being at the right place at the right time. Um, you know, looking at like, you know, looking at the last um, two years, you know, some of these deals, um, I'll just, you know, name them off the top of my head, mm-hmm. you know, in the fintech space, you have, you know, <laughs> Resolve, Corecentric, Grilled, uh, Trade Zero, Pagaya, Forge, Finaxel, Paylink, Bullish, Circle, Dave, Grab, Etoro, Cypher, Hippo, Loan Me, Moneyline, right? Half of these companies are doing the same thing. Fox, Social Finance, um, Catapult, Paysafe, Bill Trust, Bank Mobile, Paya, Triteris, Global Blue Group. Like there is everyone, you know, almost uh, one out of three of these, including, you know, Hippo, which I might've missed in Cypher, um, of these specs and these FinTech companies encroach on each other's business model in one way or the other. But because it was an, it was an exciting trend, it was easy to raise uh, capital um, for these areas. And I think, you know, whether it's a, it's a Betsy Cohen-backed FinTech Acquisition Corp or, you know, a number of these new um, SPACs that, you know, haven't, um, you know, closed on their deals, I think it's going to be a very difficult environment going forward. Like in terms of, you know, investors underwriting new deals, mm-hmm. they're going to be taking a magnifying glass, if not a microscope to the financials presented and the business models that are presented. Um, I, the, the quick, you know, the, the naming of, um, you know, the poor capital raises. I mean, half these companies are trading uh, at, the, at a fraction of their, um, at their IP, of their IPO prices. Yeah. And I could probably do the same exercise for seven or eight different industries within tech renewables EVs. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really astounding um, that people got away with it and they were allowed to use, you know, merger law versus securities law to paint, you know, these five-year pictures with, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60, 100% revenue growth estimates year after year. Um, and the SEC allowed it. So it is a, it was a wild, a wild world out there. Yeah. And, um, you know, we've been able to take advantage of it. It, it blew my mind the first time I saw a SPAC merger pitch deck where they were, I mean, allowed, I guess is, I guess is a proper word, but they were valuing themselves. They were basically benchmarking themselves on a like year seven estimated revenue multiple. And it went to what you're saying. It's like, oh, like we're going to project that from 2020 to 2027, we're going to grow at a 65% CAGR per year. And so if you think about it, we're really only trading at 0.5 times 2027 estimated revenue. And here's our benchmark companies that are benchmarked against like 2022 estimated revenues. <laughs> exactly. 
you know, this is a great business model. We're only valued at five times 2029 EBITDA. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, on a long enough time horizon, everyone's trading at like less than one times some multiple of earnings at some point in time. <laughs> oh, Absolutely. Man. So, and, um, so you, you, you got your start because uh, I, I, I want to I dive into your background because your former Goldman Sachs uh, used to run like a $2 billion, port, uh, you know, $2 billion fund. Um, and I don't know how much you worked with Will Danoff or how many interactions you had, but walk us through how you got started in the business and then the lessons that you took from running that portfolio at Goldman. Absolutely. So I'll give you a quick background. So, you know, I'm the first uh, son of two Indian immigrants uh, who, when they moved to New York City from New Delhi, um, were probably the only Indians on their block um, and the only Indians in their neighborhood. And it was a, you know, a difficult time growing up, you know, looking different, speaking differently, eating differently. But I love the idea um, of being, you know, a U.S. citizen and, and the first of my family to get an education um, in the United States and to have the ability to succeed. That was the American dream. And you know, it was, I went to public school um, and ended up getting a full ride um, to a university in Boston and then took that opportunity to network and essentially get my first job as uh, a tech support analyst. So that was essentially my first job. And I was, you know, back when there was Reuters Bridge Station 2 and the old Bloomberg terminals where you actually didn't have a separate keyboard, like there's an entire box that was a Bloomberg box. Mm -hmm. um, I was essentially, you know, going around and troubleshooting and fixing and installing software. And if someone broke their keyboard, I would replace the keys. So that's how I got my first um, exposure uh, to, you know, corporate finance and financial services, you know, back at Citigroup. And I, at that time, my only exposure to financial services was, you know, articles I'd read about, you know, Carl Icahn and, and George Soros um, and some of the bigger names of the time who were just, you know, becoming, you know, popular and that they were, they thought differently. Um, and, you know, I, I think mentorship was a key driver of my career in that I always enjoyed a good conversation. Mm -hmm. um, I would always, you know, after fixing someone's computer, I would say, hey, you know, let's grab a burger. If you don't mind, um, it would be great just to learn more about what you do. And, yeah. you know, after a few of those meetings, I was able to get an opportunity on the risk management side uh, of, a, of a global uh, equities fund. And from there, um, I actually did private equity. Um, they had a, they, you know, they had a, a subsidiary that was looking to do private equity, to, you know, after the big buyouts boom. Um, I did that for a couple of years. And then I realized I wanted to get a brand name on my resume um, and get formal training. So I ended up, you know, going into the Goldman Sachs um, training program and I did banking for a little bit. And then I switched to the sales and trading side and joined. So I was, I was an M&A banker. And then I joined the merger arb desk mm -hmm. on the sales side of Goldman Sachs. Um, at that time, you know, you had all, you know, the legends, 
um, that left and started their own funds. You know, you had Daniel Ock of Oxif, right? You had Dinekar Singh of TPG Axon. Um, you know, you had Renan Agus, who I think it was running, you know, big part of, is running a big part of GSAM now. Um, and I was essentially, you know, part of that group. I was, I was a couple years younger um, than, than that group. And, you know, really admired and looked up to these guys that were taking risk and thinking of things in a unique way um, and were pursuing, you know, arbitrage opportunities and were shorting deals that they thought that were going to break. And it was, it was a way to think that I had just never thought of. Hmm. And it really, you know, got me motivated and um, really focused on finding opportunities to um, build my own risk. And my goal was to become a portfolio manager and uh, was very passionate about it. So, you know, after being on, you know, essentially middle office, back office and sell side for about eight years, you know, moved into um, a risk taking seat uh, where it's subsequently promoted um, to manage, you know, part of a larger portfolio. Um, because within GSAM, you know, there are a number of, of, of hedge fund portfolios. GSIP was the former risk garb group. And it was essentially because of the Volcker rule after Lehman Brothers, it was essentially, you know, moved into um, GSAM and was, you know, essentially was able to raise external capital. So that was, um, you know, great time for me where I was able to learn a lot, um, was able to deploy risk. Um, you know, working at Goldman, I think is a little bit more difficult uh, than working at, you know, a traditional hedge fund because there are, you know, there are more stringent requirements about, you know, modeling and presentation and risk mm -hmm. management and and formal committees and that's that's eased up now, um, but at the time it was a very formal process, um, so I was really able to cut my teeth and um, I made the best decisions actually in 2008 you know, taking advantage of, of mergers that, you know, I felt could potentially break. And the interesting mm. thing about merger arbitrage is, you know, people think about it traditionally as, you know, buying a target, shorting an acquirer, um, doing the antitrust analysis and making a spread. Mm. Um, but the real money in the merger arbitrage space is made when um, you have a hostile bidding situation, right? Where there are multiple bidders on the upside and you have limited downside um, because there's always that floor bid or, um, when a deal is going to break and you can buy cheap vol um, on a deal breaking or short a stock um, at an elevated valuation. So there are a number of, um, you know, takeovers, you know, or rumors that broke, um, you know, in 2008. And the most famous deal that didn't get done um, was Yahoo when Yahoo turned down the $31 a share offer from Microsoft and soon saw its stock plunge to almost $8 a share. Yeah. Um, <laughs> forcing Jerry Yang to step down following that disaster. Or um, when Huntsman's takeover uh, by Apollo management's Hexion was terminated, or the mega takeover of BCE was canceled, or when BHP Billiton terminated its offer for Rio. There's so many opportunities um, you know, to find deals and short them, or like the Alliance Data Systems deal that was terminated with Blackstone. Um, so that was you know, a way that I found um, was easier to generate alpha. And my whole career prior had been, you know, on the long side. And in 2008, I learned, um, 
you know, that you can essentially smooth returns and also generate uh, returns on the short side. And that really, you know, we used to track our sharp ratios and, you know, that really helped me understand how, you know, to manage risk because on the special sit side, you know, there's a tendency to be long biased. And I, I kind of pride myself on being, um, you know, able to think outside the box and also to think about downside risk. Um, and at that time, I also, you know, after 2008, you know, we had the opportunity to build out a distressed uh, book and not only do equities, but to do uh, credit. And that really expanded my horizons. And I was able to work on um, the Lehman Brothers bankruptcy and LBHI and LCPI were big positions um, that paid for four or five years. Um, you know, the Catmark ba uh, bankruptcy, uh, GGPI, um, you know, which Ackman is always uh, seen as being the only guy involved, but there are many of us, there are at least seven or eight um, hedge funds that took advantage of that position. And it was an absolute home run, um, whether you were in the credit or in the equity, realizing that um, most of the debt was non-recourse to the holding company. Um, and obviously that was, you know, that was acquired. Um, so, I think that the 2008 was was a time that really molded me as an investor, and then you know after that there were a number of trends that we were able to take advantage of. Whether it was you know REIT spinoffs, splitoffs, um, whether it was um, you know conversions, sorry REIT and MLP conversions, um, whether it was at that time you know you could essentially uh, create a list of all the of all the spins and identify you know, which companies were overvalued or undervalued. Um, but today, you know, the market is just more astute and um, it's a lot more difficult to, to mm -hmm. generate alpha there. So what I have done is found a niche where um, after leaving Goldman, I have been able to generate, um, you know, alpha by doing research on short SPAC opportunities. And I think that opportunity is probably one of the best short opportunities um, in probably hist in, in history. Um, and the reason why I say this is the euphoria in the space. You know, I, I had, you know, SPACs are not new. You know, they've been around for decades. Right. Um, but we went from essentially a ten billion dollar industry to a two hundred billion dollar industry overnight. Um, and we talked about a few of the examples, but, you know, some of the elevated valuations, um, you know, that, that you've seen on almost no revenue or no earnings um, have been unprecedented, you know, at any other time outside of the private markets, um, but 2000, 2001, 2002. Um, and taking a step back from that, uh, before we get into that in detail, I mean, the pandemic provided a number of opportunities where, given the Federal Reserve backdrop, you could make unreal returns. Um, and even on the long side, there were opportunities that were three and four backers, um, you know, outside of the euphoric areas. Um, for example, in the real estate space, where there was a lot of stress and REITs were getting the repos pulled, and there were, you know, REIT liquidations. There was a UBS fund that liquidated it. It was a leveraged product. And just overnight, there were preferreds, um, you know, paying 20% plus carry 
um, that were down trading at $10, $25. These are 25 par prefs. Um, convertible bonds down 40 points for a number of these uh, REIT structures. Um, and there were, you know, there were opportunities like Colony Capital, which had similar to, you know, GG, uh, similar to um, GGP back in 2008, you know, this is a company with 6 billion of, of hotel and assisted living and nursing home debt that was non-recourse to the parent. And Mark Gonzi coming in and replacing um, Barrick as a new CEO and converting it into a digital REIT at a time where everything was going into a cloud was a home run trade. Mm -hmm. um, which started with the debt and then went to the prefs uh, at ten dollars. You know, with twenty plus carry that rallied to the par, right? So two and a half x um, uh, in you know also collecting coupons along the way, um, and then buying the equity you know, under two dollars a share, um, which subsequently rallied to six within months um, of people understanding what the pro forma capital structure would look like. Wow. You know, there were opportunities like that where you had a margin of safety and you yeah. can get you could have gotten involved. You know, at at the higher part of the capital structure in credit and worked your way down into equity, um, which is also kind of the Tepper Appaloosa type trade mentality. Right. Um, but where you know individual investors were making most of their money um, was in the more speculative opportunities, like in the SPAC space and microcaps. There are companies like Microvision that had essentially lied about lidar technology that, you know essentially rallied, you know, two, 3,000%. And then, you know, every, every quarter, the CEO would say, we're going to sell the company and it just never happened. And because of short yeah. interest, there are a number of these opportunities that went parabolic. And one thing I realized was, you know, I asked, why is this happening? And it really started in October of 2019, even before the pandemic, when a number of brokers um, copied Robinhood and went to zero fee trading. And you saw very quickly 400 billion of retail capital into the market, 25 million new accounts, and trading as a percentage of total of daily trading volume went from you know 15% of the market to 35% of the market. And you saw the, the crazy amounts of euphoria in, in cryptos, in microcaps, OTCs, in SPACs. And that backdrop allowed a number of SPACs to raise money at astronomical valuations, but not only that, it allowed hedge funds um, that wanted to make, you know, 15% type returns to commit um, in big ways to, to pipes. So, you know, pipes grew and grew and grew. And because there's so much interest in pipes, because you could essentially get in at a discount to trust. Mm -hmm. um, so all SPACs essentially have a $10 trust that is legally, you know, allowed to invest in six month treasuries or money market securities. And eventually, you know, the trust and the pipe finance a deal, which is called the definitive agreement. And once that agreement um, is voted on, you know, this, you know, this SPAC becomes a DSPAC or a publicly traded company. And in the meantime, there is so much cash in, in 2021 that was committed to the pipe portion of the financing of these deals that many of them didn't need any equity investment from retail investors. Um, and, you know, the pipe itself would meet the minimum cash requirement. And right. that actually pushed valuations higher. The more cash you throw at something, the more the underwriters have the ability to raise the valuation. Mm -hmm. And that's essentially the retail euphoria giving, um, you know, hedge funds uh, confidence that the SPAC trade would continue, then committing to pipes, trying to lock in an ARB, um, 
you know, raising valuations even further and then sponsors, the way they get remunerated, sometimes 20% um, in the form of warrants, um, mm-hmm. really pushed the entire ecosystem, you know, similar to what happened in, in housing, right? Housing just didn't happen overnight. It was a mortgage brokers, right? It was people taking no doc and low doc loans. It was the banks that were looking the other way. Um, you know, all three of those things uh, came together uh, along with high leverage and people owning multiple properties without renters to contribute to the housing crisis. And here we have a number of factors contributing, you know, the retail euphoria, you know, hedge fund greed and, and misunderstanding of, of how, um, you know, the ARB would work given the lockups, um, sponsor, um, you know, mis, uh, mis, misguidance of providing, you know, truly optimistic forecasts. Only right. 32% of SPACs, by the way, have hit their earnings or revenue targets versus 80% of the S&P over the last two years. That is and nuts. Wow. It is bizarre, right? Like if I told you, that you know, as if I was you know um, your nephew, and I went to school, and I told you that I scored thirty percent across all five subjects in school. I mean, you wouldn't have anything to say to me. Like you would almost yeah. be at a loss for words. Yeah. And here is a group of three hundred DSPACs today, that you know, in their first um, public earnings release, you know, two thirds of them just blatantly miss revenue and earnings, and then you know, just blame. Uh, factors, you know, in a, in a growing economy, in it, when the U.S. economy is growing above 6% last year, they just blame, you know, just ridiculous factors on, on their misses, right. um, kind of tells you, you know, that all these factors contributed to one of the biggest bubbles of all time. And, you, you know, the average enterprise value to SPAC ratio or flow is seven to one. So theoretically, the 200 billion of capital in the 587 pre-deal nav specs out there has buying power of 1.4 trillion. So like this industry actually got to a point where, you know, these, these specs had an incredible amount of buying power. Um, and it blew into a bubble that, you know, if you take a step back, you could really take advantage of just like a regular IPO on the sponsor and management unlock, mm-hmm. um, which we call the 180 day unlock. Or um, earlier than that, you know, within the first 45 to 60 days, the pipe to unlock, the, the, the pipe unlock. Yeah. And the interesting thing about a SPAC is there are five um, parts of the SPAC lifecycle, right? There's the SPAC IPO where, you know, you get it in a discount and today you might get a full free warrant that you can sell for a three, four, three, four percent profit. And you can essentially earn as much as a 7% total return on a risk-free instrument by selling that on day one and then just holding um, the stock uh, and waiting for an expiration or a DA or a redemption. Um, so that's the IPO. Then you have the pre-deal NAVSPAC, you know, you know pre-DA, um, which is usually trading below trust and it's a cash park vehicle for a lot of SPAC arbitrageurs. Then you have, you know, the, the DA NAVSPAC, um, which is after the reported deal, that's when you usually get, you know, an increase in the price of warrants, which we'll revisit in a second. Um, and, you know, you have a target in mind. Then you actually have the ex redemption period where the SPAC loses its NAV floor. You know, the $10 trust is no longer relevant because you have to put in for redemption at least three days before the deal closes on average. You know, then post the vote, right, you have a DSPAC, which is, which is a regular company. But 45 to 60 days after that, depending on the filing of S1, S1A, or foreign filers, F1, F1A, 
um, you have a uh, pipe unlock. So you have the four, um, 424B3 filing, the prospectus and the, uh, the effect filing, which allows essentially um, the pipe holders, which were the, head, the fast money hedge funds we talked about, yep. um, the public investors, uh, the private investors in public equity that were able to get in, you know, at 850 or $9 that are trying to sell their shares before the, you know, the despec shares collapsed. Um, those guys essentially didn't realize they were locking themselves up in deals. And, you know, months later, um, we're selling 50% lower. Um, and what ended up happening was there are a number of SPAC uh, or pipe investors that violated rules that sold too early, that shorted other deals. Um, this area was really the wild west. And what was driving the selling was, um, in my opinion, was the realization that the pipe to float ratios started to become out of whack. After the SPAC market peaked in the first quarter, of 2021, um, we were one of the first, um, you know, independent um, newsletters or, or research firms that identified a number of opportunities where um, redemptions were high, and yep. the pipe to float ratios were over 100. Um, percent So essentially, when the pipe became effective, or you were able to sell it as a hedge fund, there are more shares being sold into the market than the actual float or the pro forma float. And that ratio has gotten worse and worse. In October, um, it was about 55, 60%. And today it's over 80%. And that, that paints a, a really interesting story because essentially assume you have a billion dollar trust, which is you know, three times as large as the average trust, but to make numbers easy, um, you know, the pipe let's say is 100 and the trust is 100. And you, know, you are a biotech spec and you have no revenue and you have no earnings. So, in our methodology, we rank it a, a five out of five because there's no foreseeable ability to generate free cash flow um, over the next three years. Mm -hmm. And you have a no-name CEO and you have, I'm not even gonna name um, the underwriters, but you have one of the tiny underwriters and a SOSO sponsor. And uh, all of a sudden you realize that you have 95% redemption. So all of a sudden you go from 100 million trust to 5 million trust. Whew. And your pipe is now still 100 million. And there, there is an example right now in our SPAC database with the 20x pipe to float ratio that I'm not going to name. Wow. But you have a situation now where you have $100 million or 10 million, you know, 10 million shares that are going to unlock, okay? And you have essentially 500,000 uh, share float or a $5 million float, which, by the way, um, you know, you, you're probably a lot lower after the um, after the vote, right? So that could be trading at, you know, two, three bucks, right? The, the actual market cap, right? Could be under a couple million bucks of this company where, you know, with 500,000 shares outstanding, you're going to see a hundred million shares unlock with people that have cost bases of 850. So that is the dynamic and is one of the most apparent, uh, type of setups. Um, and then, you know, let's say six months later, you have, you know, the, the former sponsor, which is likely a VC or a private equity firm that's seeing this carnage and their stocks at two bucks, do they have the conviction, um, you know, if it's two, three, four, five bucks to hold, or do they realize that this company doesn't generate free cash and it's going to need to do an equity raise and they sell ahead of that equity raise? So you essentially have two uh, times up to bat with a lot of these companies. And we, you know, we look at management teams, we look at 
uh, free cash flow gener gener generative ability. We do traditional fundamental analysis. We model out some of these names and understand, you know, are there any barriers to entry? Is this an acquisition target? Um, is this a company that will need to raise equity in the future? Are, are management's uh, estimates accurate? Um, and we triangulate, you know, using mosaic theory, you know, what opportunities here are, um, are interesting from the short side. But then even on the long side, um, the SPAC instrument, you know, we, I just went, you know, on for 20 minutes on, on why it's one of the best short opportunities in the world, but it's yeah. such a unique product because on the long side, there are opportunities where you can buy something close to trust and, or participate in a SPAC IPO and you have a free warrant in something that could be a great business. You know, Algoma reported earnings yesterday. It was, it's a steel mill and, you know, steel in the U.S. has been protected um, by the government. So, you know, there were anti-dumping uh, tariffs mm -hmm. passed a few years ago. So um, HRC prices are, are pretty healthy today and, and steel margins are healthy also because of supply chain issues. Um, and, you know, this is a company that is going to do, you know, a billion of EBITDA um, on an enterprise value um, prior to yesterday's results um, like 500 that million. was that was five yes that was wow. you know about five six hundred million so this company um was able to essentially announce today that it's it was buying back essentially half the enterprise value and <laughs> i've never i have never seen something like that because and the, and the market cap was obviously bigger than the enterprise value because the company had a net cash position of 915 million. Um, so this is a company where, you know, cash is, you know, majority of the market cap and no one follows it on the street because it is a D-SPAC. Um, and we were able to, you know, to, to find it, it's diamond in the rough. And there are other examples on the long side um, that after, you know, this market, uh, has been decimated could be really interesting. Their names at a dollar, two dollars that could be takeout targets, or you know that I feel don't need to raise equity, and if they just grow for two or three years, could be re-rated and they trade at 50, 60 percent discounts to their public peers. Yeah. Um, and on the Nasdaq front, there are also some really interesting call options where you can buy companies that have already announced deals, um, you know, at one percent below or two percent below trust where if they actually close the deal, it's, it's a great company. Um, and those are rare, um, but those are free options. And, you know, if you get involved in one of those situations and it starts to trade, um, you know, there are examples of just trading vehicles like CFEI Rumble, um, you know, IPOF, IPOD, um, GGPI, THCA, you know, examples where we have been able to essentially trade them as they get close to their cash value. And there's really, you know, no uh, technical analysis other than this is getting close to cash, buy them close to cash or below trust and trade them when they rally three to 4% with the market or with news or with the cat, any type of catalyst, right? You know, with CFEI, we've traded it 53 times and have earned 280%. And you won't believe that apart from the first trade that was 50%, every other trade has been between two and 7%. You know, early on, there were some double digits, but most of the trades have been between two and 7%. And, 
And about a third of the IRR has been by selling cash covered calls that expire monthly on part of the position uh, on cover, uh, covered calls and cash covered puts. Um, and it is just a phenomenal product because you know what the, what the value is until the vote is going to happen. And similarly with IPOF, IPOD, you know, 25, 30 times, you know, for each one, um, GGPI as well. Um, and then on the flip side, you know, given the, the decline in, uh, you know, the EV space, um, you know, puts and put spreads on the entire EV space, including this name, even before uh, the vote, you know, are up 400%. And I think that if you really understand the space and realize how underfollowed and you know, you realize the lack of Wall Street coverage on the space. There is, there are very few opportunities where you can you can walk up to someone and say, "Hey, I made 20, 30 percent unlevered in this," or you know, my puts were up two, three hundred percent on this unlock, yeah. um, even if it's sm a small amount of capital deployed, because those opportunities just don't exist, right, in this type of market, mm -hmm. um, without taking material risk. You know, there's some of these companies that even if the market were to rally 5% next week, that they could still be down on a 180-day unlock. So I think it's a fascinating, fascinating space. And it's not the only thing that we're focused on at the moment. You know, we have also, you know, over the past uh, couple of decades, like closed-end fund arbitrage has been a great asset class. Um, whether you're just buying good assets at discounts and taking advantage of your knowledge of the underlying asset classes, whether it's munis, high-yield bonds, leveraged loans, MLPs or preferred stocks, um, or it is partnering with an activist uh, like a Saba or a Bulldog um, in identifying a mismanaged product that's probably charging fees that are too high or that's destroying capital for retail investors and either forcing them to buy back shares, sell assets to collapse the NAP discount, or you know, at the end, at the annual general meeting, just replacing members of the board and taking it over yourself. So, you know, I think that is a super interesting asset class that, um, you know, has a lower beta to the market and has a high current yield, you know, and when you're looking at, you know, muni NAP specs at discounts to, to net asset value, you know, you get a big tax advantage, at least federal tax, right? Unless you're living in the state or city of that, and it's a state or city focused fund, um, you know, you take your marginal, you take your tax rate, Right, and if it's let's say a four percent fund, and you divide it by, you know, your tax rate, you could have a six percent, you know, effective yield. And if you're buying that fund at a fifteen percent discount to NAV, and it, you know, compresses to five, right, you have a teens total return in an environment where everyone else is losing money um, in the equity market. So, you know, I think special situations is a broad area, and you know, we've also looked at names like Sanderson Farms, where we like the underlying asset. This is a company, you know, in the agricultural space that was trading, you know, another name that was trading it under three times EBITDA, where you look at its peers, you know, Pilgrim's Pride and others, um, they're trading at much higher valuations. And this is a completely unlevered balance sheet. Um, and this, the ARB spread, you know, when this was at 180, just a couple months ago, uh, was phenomenal, or is a two, uh, $203 full cash offer. And you could have bought that at an 11 and percent deal spread, you know, on May 9th, that's tightened. And now people realize that the business is so cheap that there, there's a possibility for a topping bid. This traded up $6 through the bid, 
right? So it's a double digit total return for a company that based on our analysis, if the deal was terminated, because it was announced months ago before the agricultural rally um, in poultry and grains, et cetera, um, we felt on termination that this deal could rally on a termination. So, you know, I think at putting together kind of the years of work and due diligence, you know, in this type of environment, we have been able to, you know, help investors without giving any financial advice, but to give examples and education about things that are possible right. um, and lists of different opportunities um, and case studies that, you know, allow the retail investor to realize that taking unnecessary speculative risk in things like crypto um, and things like OTC stocks and things um, like, you know, unprofitable tech um, is not the only way to allocate capital. And there are better ways, you know, to save for your family. There, there are better ways to allocate so that you can sleep at night. And in this type of environment where macro is driving so much of, se- of the sector rotation, there are names, um, you know, for example, in the NASDAQ space, you could completely go to sleep and wake up three months later and, you know, just redeem at trust if you bought at a discount to trust. So that's kind of been our focus. And whether it's retail or institutional, you know, the, edu- the education and basic information we provide, um, you know, I'm saying it's basic, but for many, you know, they've never heard of these asset classes. Um, right. And, you know, we've got an uh, institutional interest as well. Um, which has been great in, in, in having, in being able to, you know, help train um, analysts, um, sharing information with, with funds that are not intimate with the asset class um, has been an eye-opening an eye opportunity for me since I have always been focused on education. You know, I taught at a nonprofit, um, you know, I actually sold an ed tech company um, after my garden leave from Goldman and, you know, I think that the democratization of finance and investments has been a really big theme and it will only continue as people empower themselves. Um, and COVID, you know, has, has made that more of a reality and hopefully people take the good lessons um, out of investing textbooks and, and what they read um, and apply, imply them um, in a way that, that can benefit their families um, and their children um, going forward. So, you know, I know that I've been kind of speaking on and on. Maybe that's this is a good time to to take a break and, and go into Q and A. Yeah, I mean, I'll let you uh, let you get some water. There was there 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 was so much good stuff there, and I I had a Twitter space on the SPAC landscape. Um, I it was months ago, and someone actually brought up Algoma Steel, and um, you know, just 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 looking at it for those that don't know. I'm going to, I'm going to basically they reported yesterday, kind of like what you said. And, and there's two parts to, I guess you call it their, their capital allocation policy. So the first one is a normal course issuer bid, which allows them to acquire up to 5% of its issued and outstanding shares um, as of February 18th this year. And so that's kind of the normal course issuer bid. So that's one part of it, but they also have a substantial issuer bid. Um, that it intends to basically buy up to $400 million of the company's stock in a modified Dutch auction. 
Um, and so they're basically buying it from existing shareholders and then canceling the shares. And that's just like wild to me because you have an enterprise value of 500 million and the company is basically saying, Hey, we want to buy 5% of the outstanding shares. Oh, and by the way, we want to buy up to $400 million of stock. Um, and that opportunity, like as of today, I mean, I know it was up 19%, but it's still trading at $9 a share, you know, nine and a half dollars a share. So it's still at $500 million EV. And like these opportunities are existing. And um, I think one of the, one of the reasons why this stuff exists is a right like SPACs have just an awful reputation, and I think a lot of this stuff gets thrown out with the bathwater, which again is like the perfect opportunity for someone like yourself or myself who doesn't have necessarily the restraints of a large institution, um, or you know they have to play within a certain rules where you can buy you know a hundred million dollar companies or five hundred EV, um, you know five hundred million EV companies. But the other, the other part too, is like, these are not fun stocks to talk about, right? Like it's, it's been, it's way easier and it's way hotter and you sell way more newsletter subscriptions talking about crypto and the latest high tech growth stock. And, you know, just droning on about S curve adoptions and, and um, you know, the shift in consumer sentiment. And I've, I've fallen victim to a lot of that kind of, um, you know, mantra, not saying it's all bad, but at the same time, it's like, you can buy these you know, steel producers that, you know, manufacture rolled, you know, cold rolled steel and buy them at you know, literally two times cash flow, less than two times, you know, less than three times cash flow. But they're just not fun to talk about at like bars or with friends. Like, oh, like, what are you buying? Well, you, you know what? <laughs> One thing I learned early on was that the best investments are the boring investments. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, the best investments are, you know, old boring Hulkos that, you know, have some land to sell or they've unrealized or some of the parts stories like Tiptree where, you know, if you have an insurance company that also owns shipping assets, like what is that, right? So just sell the shipping assets and IPO the insurance and you create a company that should be worth twice the multiple um, and it's completely undervalued. And that's an interesting special situation that almost doubled, um, you know, a few months ago. Um, and, you know, with Algoma, right, this is a blast furnace operator. It's not even a new technology, right? They take, they take metallurgical coal, heat it up in a furnace. They take iron ore, melt it down and, and create steel that's sold to you know, the auto industry across the Great Lakes and, and other industries like uh, commercial uh, real estate construction. And what people don't understand is that this company, after it emerged from bankruptcy and then raised capital as a new company, had no debt. So you're not looking at the, at the same risks that you were looking at um, for changes in the price of steel. So, I mean, just thinking about, you know, everyone kind of looks at hot world coil um, as, a, as a kind of benchmark. And we're at, you know, $1,135 a ton today. You know, the peak was $2,000. Um, and in my opinion, even if we get back to, you know, six to $800, which by the way, um, was, was essentially, um, a, a five-year low in the price of steel, this company will still be profitable, right? So what's the right price is 800, 900, um, in that type of environment, this will still do a double digit free cash flow yield after buying back a third of the company. Um, now there are other considerations, right? If we're going to recession, um, how do cyclical companies perform? And that's when it's important to do your factor, uh, analysis, 
But if you have no exposure to the sector, I mean, this is a company that um, I trimmed today personally before the Fed meeting because, you know, it's not every day you're up 20% in this type of market. Um, but there are a number of companies like this. You know, um, Algoma has a Canadian uh, comp called Stelco, which trades at a similar valuation. And it doesn't have kind of the, some of the future CapEx requirements um, that Algoma has to build an electric arc furnace, which is more ESG friendly, but, you know, there are two um, electric arc companies uh, in the U.S., Steel Dynamics and Nucor, um, and they trade at higher valuations, but essentially you take recycled scrap steel um, and it costs a lot less, right, to take recycled steel and, and to, um, you know, to remanufacture it. So that's a project they're working on, whereas Stelco doesn't have that project and trades at a similar valuation. So if you really dig into it, you know, Wall Street, sell side, the sell side from when I was growing up in the industry um, is so much different, right? There is no Mary Meeker, right? There's no star analyst. There, you know, the remuneration for being a sell side analyst is probably lower than a lot of the middle office functions at banks. So the incentives really aren't there. Um, you know, and at, on the buy side, you end up getting pigeonholed, focusing on one thing or the other. Or, you know, when you're investing your own portfolio, right? Like you said, people want to go to bars and talk about something exciting. And usually when something gets exciting, that's when I'm selling. Um, so if you kind of think like that and you have the contrarian mindset, I think it is a way to at least have more consistent uh, returns um, within, you know, more realistic expectations over time. And to avoid, you know, kind of the the big crashes, right? Um, it doesn't matter how much you made in the last two years, um, but if you were down and you didn't sell and you were down 70, 80%, it's very likely you're back where you started. Um, yeah. Whereas, you know, a number of special sits guys that, that I personally know, like did extremely well, um, also during COVID, um, maybe didn't have, you know, any 10 baggers in the portfolio, but had many three or four baggers, but they've been able to at least keep the majority of their returns. So in the end, you know, who's ahead? Um, it's preservation of capital that, that really matters um, in this game, because if you don't preserve capital, you're out of the game, right? If you're down 50%, you need to make 100% um, to get your money back. And if you're down, you know, two thirds, right, you need a need a triple um, to make your money back. So I think it's, a, it's an important lesson for investors today to learn. Is it enough with these ideas, right? Whether it's, you know, a, uh, a Algoma steel at, at less than three times free cash flow, is it enough to just like run a simple screen and then, and then just try to pick through the rubble there? Because I, like one thing I'm, I'm trying to do more is actually run fewer screens because the logic there is right. If, if something's cheap, it's, it's, it's cheap for a reason. And, you know, why am I the, you know, anointed one that gets to buy this thing for less than three times free cash flow. And maybe that's just me being too cynical, right? Like maybe the reason it's cheap is because of a host of non-fundamental reasons. Um, but it, you know, just kind of like begs the question, like why, why is it enough maybe to just run a screen for these things? And like, should should that be enough to generate these returns? Like, is there is there something missing? I guess is what I'm saying. 
I think that's a great question. And I personally don't think it's enough to run a screen. I think having a screen is one way to generate ideas. Um, when it, whether you're running a, a screen on, you know, EV to EBITDA or forward EV to EBITDA or price to earnings or forward price to earnings or PEG or free cash flow to the firm or free cash flow to equity or free cash flow yield or discounts to book value. Um, they're all various ways to find, you know, companies where they're trading at a discount to um, either a peer universe or, you know, the net present value of the future cash flows they can generate or some um, asset value that runs through a capital structure waterfall. Like all of the, the purpose of a screen is to essentially create a list of opportunities. And I also tend to run many screens, but oftentimes I'll only find like two or three companies that are interesting in the screen. And then, you know, the more important part is to then figure out, okay, well, why is this cheap? Like you were saying, yeah. is it because there's some off balance sheet liability? You know, if you're looking at a cheap coal name, right? Is there an ARO liability, environmental liability? Is there a pension? Is there OPEB, right? And is leverage really higher than we think? Or is it an industry where the valuation should be one to two times because, you know, the industry is in secular decline and, and coal plants are being decommissioned. Um, so I think it's, you know, the, the first part, I think screening, I think is a good tool. Um, but the second part in identifying why and identifying why may not be easy because, you know, I have prior experience in certain sectors and that's why I can jump to a conclusion, um, you know, after reading an earnings transcript or going through one filing. Um, yeah. But sometimes you need to reach out to IR, which is, by the way, small cap and mid cap companies will reply to even retail investors if you reach out to IR and you're respectful and you have a good question. Um, reaching out to IR, or if, if you are an institutional investor, re reaching out directly to management teams and looking at the competitive landscape, right? You know, my position in a company like um, Algoma would have been much, much higher if I hadn't looked at, you know, US Steel and AK Steel and realized, well, you know, the entire industry is kind of trading under five times. You know, the right. it's not, you know, if, if this were a company that were trading at one to two times at the lows, and the entire industry, you know, was trading at 10 times, I'd be like, okay, well, I really need to dig into this. Does no one, does no one know this business? Is there some issues, some environmental liability um, and really dig into it. But, you know, just to put in perspective, you know, this isn't, you know, the entire industry is kind of trading under, under um, on the blast furnace side under three times. Um, so this one was trading at, a, at a, actually a very sharp, sharp discount. Um, at the lows to some of the bigger players um, and a very big discount to the electric arc furnace players. Um, but, you know, understanding, you know, why something trades at a discount, um, what they can do with their cash flow, what they can unlock, is management team decent? Are there any um, immediate risks, any immediate liabilities? Um, I think it takes experience to look out for red flags and, I think, you know, the best way to think is if I were to buy this business, would I want to own this business as and run it like a, you know, an owner CEO, like, would that be something that I could see myself doing and what would be impediments? Um, right. What would be risk? Because oftentimes people cut corners with risk analysis, right? You know, there are usually 20 or 30 risks highlighted in a 10 K that everyone seems to gloss over and, those are risks. I mean, they're being disclosed for a reason, right? They're real risks. Um, and, you know, 
if you spend time on them and you investigate them and you look at, you know, you read the MDNAs of competitors and you read industry rags, you reach out to management teams of competitors and you really start to understand an industry, it also helps you build conviction and helps with your position sizing as well. So I think first step screen is fine. Second, trying to understand why the valuation is cheap is a good step. Third is figuring out what will unlock that. Is there a catalyst? Is there an event? Is management talking about share buyback or a dividend? Or are they going to sell themselves? Or are they going to split the business up? Um, is there any catalyst? A simple catalyst could be, is, are, is earnings going to improve? Right? Are they going to refinance yeah. debt? Something people don't really think about. Um, and it's not just like, you know, looking at MPS score or TAM, right? Like I'm talking about harder catalysts. Like, are they going to announce a 20% cost reduction plan? And what does that mean for free cash flow and EPS? That type of analysis often yields more immediate results that are sustainable um, and repeatable because the key is to have a repeatable process. You could be, you could run, be running three to four different processes and looking at three to four different types of investments. As long as there's a repeatable process um, that has, you know, immediate or near-term results, you can actually generate decent returns uh, doing the same thing um, and, and obviously evolving, right, as the market changes. Um, but it, I think people really get in trouble where they, they think something is really easy and then they swing for the fences because optically something looks cheap or optically something looks like it's growing really fast. You know, a quick example is like in consumer brands, like in energy drinks, right? You could, you could see a company growing at 100, 200, 300% a year. Um, and because a lot of people are involved in this company, I won't name it. But if all of a sudden that, that growth rate slows down um, even marginally, Right with growth with growth companies that don't that don't generate profits, if that growth uh, decelerates from let's say 160 percent to 80 percent to 40 percent, the multiple should deteriorate as that growth rate comes down, and you know you don't really have a margin of safety. Um, I highly encourage anyone you know listening to this to read you know Margin of Safety by Seth Klarman. You know I know that many have read it, but if if you're not from kind of the value or event uh driven background you may not be aware of it um but i think doing kind of deep due diligence and finding value opportunities that have catalysts and at the same time having some cash handy um because you're never going to time the market properly is a good way to be able to sleep at night and to generate consistent returns for long periods of time and at the same time if you are flexible and you're not like, you know, investing a 401k or an IRA, you could generate synthetic dividends by selling covered calls on your portfolio in times of chop um, as well and enhance your return that way. Like there, there are many ways that you can take, you, you know, that you can be empowered and take control of your, of your own account, like without even going into specific advice or specific examples. Um, I think a year of practice and education can set someone up to avoid very common pitfalls. Um, but that's like a long-winded answer to your question of, um, <laughs> is screening a, a good tool? And, 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 and the short answer is it is a great tool when you combine it, um, with the other things I mentioned. Now with some of these names that are trading, you know, like low, you know, market cap, we'll just call it high, high free cash flow yields. Um, you know, how much of that is just a function of, a supernatural period of, or just a, a, a hyper-specific period of supernatural cash flow 
um, and revenue coming into the company. And then when you look at these things, like how much are you just discounting any future revenue and cash flow? Because for instance, like if I look at Algoma Steel and I just run, I just look up like a simple, you know, like five year, four or five year estimate on 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 ticker. It's like there's going to be. It looks like you know someone's estimating substantial revenue decline and EBITDA margin compression. And so it's like, is it so cheap where even if you bake in like either like a normalization, right? Because like everyone has talked about COVID normalizers where they've gone from like super returns to back to normal. Um, Like how much, how much of that plays into that valuation where it's like, okay, you might be buying it at two times cash flow, but you're really buying it at five to six times, like three years cash flow, which changes the return profile dramatically. Yeah, that's a great question. And you kind of see that in the energy space as well. You know, there's a number of, of companies that, that people love in the energy space. You know, one is, you know, Canadian company Synovus, right? Which is going to do, you know, 10 billion of free cash flow this year in Canadian dollars, right? On a 54 billion market cap. Um, so, you know, just quick math, 9.2 divided by 54, you know, you were at a 17% free cash flow there. Um, and another example on the natural gas side is Ontario. And, you know, Ontario is what a $39 stock using the shares outstanding. It's a 12 billion market cap, you know, and we'll do 2 billion of free cash. So, you know, 2 billion on 12, 16% free cash flow. You know, there are a number of examples in metals and mining and commodities where because of supply chain issues, because of lack of workers, um, you know, lack of you know, mining and, and, and oil engineers, um, lack of equipment, um, and, you know, simply, you know, geopolitical issues um, and the fact that, you know, we have become more isolationist since COVID have resulted in you know, these high prices. And I think the smart thing to do is just to sensitize, you know, where were these um, commodities trading prior to COVID? Um, and then either stressing your assumptions by 5, 10, 20, 30, 40%, you know, around, um, you know, your base case assumptions and then trying to understand you know, what the expected value is uh, or the probability is that those outcomes are achievable. Like in my perspective, you know, unless we go into a deep recession, um, you know, we're running at a steel deficit right now. And, you know, in order to get pricing power in the industry, you need, you know, 70% utilization, you know, so it kind of the high eighties utilization where we're at now, you would need, you know, the economy to slow, you know, to, to actually go into a recession for prices, you know, to go below kind of six, $800 a ton, where I think these companies would still be profitable because even during 2015, 16, when the industry imploded, you know, these companies were able to, gen- to generate margins. And the reason why they filed for bankruptcy was specifically their interest expense was so high. You know, when you're doing your free cash flow analysis and you're taking, you know, EBITDA minus cash taxes, you know, adjusting for working capital, uh, adjusting for cap maintenance capex, and then taking out interest, right? Interest was like half the half the expense. Um, So I think that's important to understand. I think the same thing goes for, for energy. Um, You know, again, I've taken off a lot of my commodity exposure. I was long energy during COVID when, you know, right after oil went negative, when nobody wanted to invest in it. And I've been taking profits since November of 2021, 
um, which, you know, might've been early if, if, you know, but no one knew that Ukraine, Russia was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you look at some of these energy companies today, um, one could argue that, you know, it's been very surprising that natural gas production has been stuck at 95 BCF per day. And, you know, why isn't production going up? Why have rig counts stalled last week in probably the best profitable environment that we've seen um, in over a decade, you know, why are these companies not producing more? Um, so what's behind that? Well, you know, there's, there are ESG regulations that prevent, you know, a lot of funds from investing in coal, metals, mining, energy. There are other reasons around capital allocation. These companies aren't rewarded for growing production anymore. Their stocks usually sell off. Now in this price environment, they would probably rally, but at least over the last five years, you know, stocks, sold off when production went up too rapidly. And these companies also went through a big boom and bust cycle where they're able to borrow at very low cost because of an easy Fed. And you had a cycle in 2015, 2016, where you had a number of bankruptcies. Um, and, you know, with, with fracking, you know, with natural gas and the Marcellus um, and the Utica, right, costs were just so low uh, that companies would, um, you know, drill as much as possible. And that would just take um, marginal cost a lot lower, um, and it kept gas in a very low range for many, many years. Um, and, you know, this geopolitical turmoil, you know, however long it lasts is putting, you know, there's a geopolitical spec bid on it, but even outside of that, both oil and natural gas inventories, like natural gas inventories were already at a $300 billion, billion, uh, uh, BCF, uh, three, 300 BCF deficit before, uh, Ukraine, Russia even happened. And same with oil, you know, oil, uh, deficits were the highest we've ever seen, um, even prior to Russia, Ukraine. So there is a fundamental backdrop um, to a number of these companies. That doesn't mean there's there's not downside when the when the front month of these commodities sells off. These stocks will absolutely sell off. Um, but I think that the downside is a lot less than people think, um, just given the supply and demand imbalances outside of a recession. Um, so hopefully that that provides some perspective. Um, you know, if you look at the back end of the oil curve, right? If if Brent and WTI went to eighty, for example, or, or seventy, um, all these companies would still be incredibly profitable and would still be doing above S and P free cash flow yield. And they might be good investments after they sell off again, and you know they might be opportunities again. Um, so, you know. Across many different industries, you know, sometimes a high free cash flow yield can be a warning sign, right? That a company is in secular decline, or there's a competitive threat, or the free cash flow yield is only high because they have a lot of debt, right? And ROA times leverage is ROE. So you jack up the leverage, and all of a sudden, you know, free cash flow equity looks immense. And people often fall into those value traps as well. Um, But, you know, one trick. Um, that you can do, or one exercise is to look at kind of a three-year normalized free cash flow or EBITDA or EPS. And on a normalized basis, um, does the company still look cheap? Or on a two-year forward basis, if you're stuck with this in two years and prices are down 30, 40% and the underlying commodity, is it still cheap compared to where it traded for the last decade? Um, And are there any impediments or any reasons why you know, on a secular basis, this industry would be smaller or bigger by then. Um, 
So again, it's not easy to make money. Um, you can only take bets based on, you know, the level of due diligence that you do mm-hmm. and not every bet is going to be right. Yeah. Um, go ahead. No, I was just, I was just agreeing with you. <laughs> okay. Yeah, no, this has been, this has been, uh, I feel like I've been drinking from a fire hose and I don't, I don't necessarily, um, I don't, I don't say for every podcast that this is one that you should go back and like listen to, to absorb kind of everything. But this is one of those where I think people should go back and listen to twice, just because you've provided so much information, um, like so much, so much good information that, that I know I need to go back and like write down and, 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 and take, um, you know, into, into my investing process. And, you know, we're, we're, we're bumping up against kind of our, our time allotment here. I actually have a call at, at, at 8 PM. Um, but I, I feel like we could discuss this for another three hours, but I'm going to wrap oh, up. Oh, absolutely. Um, going I'm gonna, hours, maybe, maybe, maybe we do like a Twitter space Q and a after I release the podcast or sure. something, um, which sure would, thing. which would be super fun. But, um, if you, so I've got kind of a couple of closing questions here. Uh, the sure. first one, if you could go back and and kind of do this whole investing thing all over again, uh, what is maybe the one big thing you would change about how you how you got into the space? About how I got into the space, or one thing I would change about um, my investments or or my career? Let's do your investments, like how you invest. Okay, one thing I would have done differently is size my high conviction bets bigger. And one example is, you know, with GGPI um, across the loans and the equity, um, you know, realizing, you know, the fact that most of the debt was non-recourse and the trade was a lot less risky than, than the street um, understood it to be. I should have positioned my equity position much higher Given that it was a multi bag, it, it, it would it could, it was a high probability it would have been a multi bagger versus you know being kind of the conservative, you know special situations you know double digit return guy and sticking with the loan. I would have knowing what I know now. There are so many opportunities where I know hindsight's twenty twenty, where I could have sized my higher conviction bets um, bigger, and a lot of it was you know being firstborn of Asian parents where I was always told I wasn't good enough. And I, you know, I went through a period in my career where, you know, I always thought there was someone better than me. And, you know, you know, I, listen, I had a much better and safer career because I never had a big down year, but I also wish that, you know, I took bigger risks um, and, you know, started my own fund or um, sized a certain position better or went out and, and network more and, and had fun and built, you know, built, built connections instead of being in the office and, and working 24 um, seven. I think there, you know, I, you could, you could break the, that down into three areas. One um, size and conviction Two. um, taking more personal uh, and career risks. And three, um, just just going out there, being more sociable and building you know, more long lasting friendships. Because I think that that in fact, you know, can be more important um, than what you're doing day to day. Because everyone knows that you need to grind day to day to be successful in this industry. 
Um, but it's really the relationships uh, that stay with you and last, you know, years after. Yeah, I love I love that answer. Um, second question, where can people go to find out more about you? I know you're on Twitter and then you've got a website. Absolutely. Um, so I'm on I'm on Twitter. I have um, a website, specialsitsresearch.com. Um, there are various like educational products, you know, investment models, screeners, lists, um, unlock uh, databases, warrant databases, uh, merger ARB uh, templates, you know, that, that are available. Um, it's, there's just a huge swath of knowledge there. And we've been fortunate to be able to hire a couple analysts to help build um, our educational resources. And soon we're going to have a YouTube channel and we're going to have educational videos that go into various asset classes, you know, how to find a, you know, a good company with a moat, how to evaluate a company, how to build a model, um, understanding you know, how to write a covered call, just educational topics, not even focused on you know, a particular investment that I think there's a strong desire for people to, um, to see and understand. Um, and on and in addition, you know, we have a, a sister company that we're starting. You know, we do have an institutional product on our website, but we have a sister company um, we're just finishing up the documents on that that is going to be going directly to um, the hedge fund and the mutual fund community and selling a product directly um, and has the ability to um, get paid through soft dollars. So there's been just an organic demand. Like I had um, a fund in Japan. Uh, a fund in Eastern Europe and a fund in Australia just over the last two weeks that were like, hey, I'm interested in this asset class or, hey, I'm interested um, in understanding more about this company. Um, what you're doing, you know, isn't available on the sell side and it's a very reasonable price. You know, can we talk about or can we talk about you coming in training our analysts? Um, so I think that there are a number of, of, of great opportunities for individuals and institutions to, um, you know, to dig into the asset classes we cover, merger arbitrage, closed end fund arbitrage, um, SPACs, value, um, and growth at a reasonable price, um, along with preferreds, uh, which are an asset class that we didn't have time to cover today, um, that's senior in the capital structured equities. Um, but there are a number of asset classes that I think um, are underfollowed. And, you know, I think our website, specialsitsresearch.com will continue to grow um, and we'll have a new version now probably next year as well. Awesome. Awesome. That's going to be some sweet content. Um, looking, looking forward to the YouTube channel as well, just because I'm more of a visual learner. So anytime I can absorb some content on YouTube, I, I definitely make, make the effort. Uh, final question I have for you, Jay. If you could have dinner with one person from the past or the present, who would it be and why? You know, I know that this is, I want to give you like five answers, but I'm going to stick to the question and, uh, and give you one. And I would say that this person is actually still alive. Okay. Um, and I would want to have dinner with Stanley Druckmiller. And the reason I say that is that he is one of the few investors that has successfully generated 30% plus returns across various asset classes. And at 69 years old, he was born in 1953. Um, he, is st he still loves what he does and wakes up every morning and works harder 
um, than any millennial analyst, you know, grinding at a, at a pod shop. Um, and I have a lot of respect for that. And, you know, the fact that he's willing to explore new ideas, um, he's honest about his mistakes, right? When he shorted tech um, during the bubble, I think, you know, he is one person that I would definitely want to grab dinner with. And um, I'll keep it at that. There, there are a number of others, um, even outside of finance, that I, I would want to go back in time and meet with, you know, Abraham Lincoln um, being, you know, just I like contrarians who fight the good fight, um, who do what they believe in despite what everyone else is saying. And you know, have a story um, that shows that they struggled. And, you know, whether it's Einstein about him losing his fortune in the market, despite being one of the most brilliant born, you know, German born theoretical physicists um, in history. Um, there are just so many stories out there. And I think people today seem to think that, you know, achieving greatness is easy. And, while I don't put myself in the bucket of achieving greatness, I can say that the success that I achieved um, came with a lot of pain and with pitfalls and with mistakes and with having to learn from those mistakes, sometimes in uncomfortable settings. Mm -hmm. And I think that unless you can take the punches and roll with them, it is very difficult to be the best in any industry. Um, so yeah, I would definitely, um, love to meet with Druckmiller and, you know, there, there's a whole list. I could give you a list of, of, of over a hundred people I would love oh, to meet yeah. and just have dinner with. Um, Easily. but no, I, I appreciate, I appreciate the question and Brandon, I appreciate your time and I'm humbled by this, this podcast and the fact that you are willing to, to wait and listen to my rambles. It's one of the things I need to work <laughs> on when I ramble. Um, hey, it's my job so, to listen. So that's that's okay. where you and I become dangerous. <laughs> so here's another I try thing I would change. Yeah. Here's another thing. You asked me what I would change. I would listen more and talk less. I think that would have been helpful in uh, in my career because sometimes the youngest analyst with the least experience can have an edge, and having an open mind is very very important in this in this industry. Yep. Yep. hundred percent agree. I, I, I think that's a great place to end. Uh, Jay, thanks so much for coming on the show. We're going to do this again sometime, whether it's a Twitter spaces or another podcast. Um, best of luck to your research and all you're doing and, and, and keep killing it uh, through, through the rest of the year. Absolutely. You as well. This episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by S&P Global Capital IQ and has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. ValueHive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at ticker.com forward slash hive. That's T-I-K-R dot com forward slash hive.